All right, we're live. If you want to get it, all right, we're live. We're live. We're not really. Using <laughs> my radio voice. <laughs> no. I did do radio, by the way, for two or three years when I was at Boise State. Yeah, I did. Uh, you're listening to uh, KB. Yeah, KBSU. It was Boise State University. Yeah, you're listening to 90.9 on your FM dial. KBSU. <laughs> People driving home all tired and your soothing voice comes yeah. over. Yeah. I used to open up on the weekends with um, Sunday morning. I would do like uh, Keith Jarrett uh, improvisational pieces. Um, they were like 16 minutes each one. <laughs> that was more for me. Yeah. <laughs> Good morning. 16 minutes of solo improvisational piano. <laughs> All right. Okay, we are live. We're recording. We are doing what we're doing. Um, welcome to episode five, even though last week with Brett Heiner, that's, that seemed like four and five because it was in two parts. Um, this week... Um, the man, the myth, the legend, Matt Johnson. Seriously. <laughs> Finally. Finally here. Some real validation. Really, yeah. Uh, uh, validation and all those things that you need to prove that you're an important person in life. But first of all, we're going to start out, as we always do, um, about, you know, you give us a little bit of... How you got here, What your bozo story, what that is like. Go to the way back. Yeah. Let's, let's um, yeah, rewind a little bit. Go back and, and tell us what, how you got here. You know. All right. How you got to this point in your life. Let's see. I had a great childhood, great parents. Um... Around age 14, well, actually before age 14, I had an intense desire to become a pilot. Nothing was going to stop me from doing that. Um, so I got a job washing dishes at the restaurant my brother worked at, Town Village, what up? Um, and each paycheck would pay for one flying lesson. Um... Each paycheck play, paid for one flying lesson. Yeah, pretty much. Oh I might have had a little bit left over, but not much. Not much. But how, how old there was you already... How I was 14. 14, okay. Yeah. Right. And that was the... That was kind of a culmination of a pattern I'd been going through my whole childhood. Just going balls out into whatever I had an interest in that week or month. Uh-huh. But well, this one was probably longer than a week or a this month, one right? did. La- this yeah. one lasted a few years. Yeah, starting um, at fourteen. Yeah, so I started fourteen. Um, that was also the first year I got drunk. Um, my brother and his friend invited me to a party. I must have looked like I was ten. I was fourteen, <laughs> and there's a little kid with a six pack of Bud Light running around, drinking that, and. I remember how going old, to the bathroom. How old was your brother? My brother was uh, 17 or 18. I can't remember. So three or four years yeah, older than you were. he's three or four years okay. older than me, given that. Just the context, I understand. Yeah. My bigger brother, it's not like he yeah, was 20, he wasn't 21. He wasn't and, uh, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> this was a, a real legal party. Um, and I didn't really drink much or do any other sort of drug after that. But I remember thinking, okay, that's what being drunk feels like. So if I ever get anxious again, because that particular day I was very anxious. My snowboard had broken, and I wasn't going to be able to go snowboarding the next day. Oh. And that was my, you know, my 14-year-old brain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You get out and get out into the snow. Yeah. Get a few runs in. Yeah. Okay. And to my 14-year-old self, this was huge, just devastating, right? Yeah. Um, and so the beer... Did you drink the whole six pack? By the oh way? yeah, yeah. Well, three point two Utah beer. Yeah, is this in so Utah? Was, yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. So it was like three and a half normal beers, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember thinking. I went to the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I was looking at myself and things were, you know, first buzz, first drunk experience. I was like, wow, this is great. You know. 
You felt pretty I good. Felt great. Yeah. Oh, okay. All my sadness about the snowboard was gone, and it's cool. You, I think I kept that feeling in my back pocket for a while. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, oh, because you didn't drink again right away? No, or? no. It was another year at least. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Huh. Well, um, but you're also working on your... your yeah, I'm flying. Your um, pilot's piece. I played hockey. I liked to skateboard. I'd skateboard every day. Um, so I kept myself pretty busy. I had... And I was very passionate about all those things. Some of those things kind of stuck. Those the pilot thing stuck for a while. Uh-huh. Skateboarding stuck since age eleven until twenty twenty one. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but I was a very anxious kid. I was a nervous kid. Um, did you know at the time you had it was anxiety you were struggling with? Um I guess I had I knew I was mm-hmm. a worrier. My mm-hmm. mom would always say you're a worry boy. Uh-huh. And she knew. But you know, nothing more than that. Okay. There was no going to see a psychiatrist or psychologist, no counseling, just worried a lot. Um, God, what was I like 15 I could have sworn I had testicular cancer ate me up for like 6 months and finally I broke down to my parents I think I have cancer my god like, no, go wait, wait, what made fine. you think you had this my body was changing Paul oh. <laughs> no you mean hormonally <laughs> yeah. hormone changes hormones physically I just thought so yeah. something's going on that's how I was though I was just like worst case scenario for everything uh-huh. and I actually I've only been able to temper that within the last couple of years hmm. when I had kids they got sick my god I was paranoid 24-7 just even if they had a cold so wow. anyway yeah. Um, probably about 15, 16, well, I was 15 when I first smoked weed. First time I didn't do much, second time I loved it. Um, and I don't want to glorify drug use in any, in any of this, but there was some very, I mean, I was started to not care about school mm-hmm. and just started to care about, uh, skateboarding and really caring about not giving a shit to be honest it was kind of my the shtick i wanted to go for i guess oh right no worries no problem yeah manana maybe i was trying to make up for being a worry ward by so did the did the did the marijuana help with the anxiety then yeah oh yeah. that was a good fit is what you're which saying. later on it didn't because it started to make me paranoid so well it depends on it's a, <laughs> it there got, are different kinds of, yeah. of marijuana not that we're going to have a discussion no we won't we don't need to get into that but marijuana but yeah, uh, can't do that. um so kind of led into high school and i remember i had friends that were part of every group. Skaters, popular kids, the kind of, I don't know if you call them hippie kids. Um, some of them were kind of gangster kids, you know. Just sure. As gangsters you could get in Murray. Actually had some kind of thuggish kids, but I kind of kept a, a relationship with people in each of these groups. I could never just... I never had a really, really, really close friend and just stuck with that person. So you, you, which I did the exact same thing, by the way. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you knew all this or not, too, is that I had friends from every group. And back then they were like, they were the the greasers, you know, or the gearheads, I think (laughs) is what we called them. The beatniks. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Well, we didn't call them hippies. We called them stoners, you know. Yeah. Back then... Um, it was, it, it, I mean, it's different today, but, um, back then, then, um, you know, and then there was the, uh, the nerds, right. Oh, um, yeah. and they still yeah. exist. Yeah. Definitely. You got to keep a foot in with them though. You got it. Well, and yeah, because, <laughs> you, you know, know they, <laughs> they're running everything anyway. Yeah. Good thing you did. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. It wasn't that I didn't feel I fit in with anyone, group, mm-hmm. but I really 
don't think I did. <laughs> I just couldn't allow myself to... I mean, yeah, I probably called myself a skater. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I did most of the time. But I made sure to hang out with various groups and, and different people all the time. And a lot of that was these kids over here did drugs. These kids didn't. Right. So a lot of that was um, trying acid for the first time at like age 16. And that was my new favorite. So I knew that if I could, if I stuck with these guys, they always had it. So there was an in there. Um, and back then I didn't know what I was trying to, cover up or uh, deflect from or try to not think about mm-hmm. besides I did worry a lot still mm-hmm. um, the anxiety was still there yeah did you have panic attacks at this time too do you no did, no panic attacks no panic yeah. attacks because um, sometimes they just get missed the, the panic attack looks different than people think it is it almost can turn into some form of a depressive state you know when people think of a panic attack yes they may have a hard time breathing have a hard time thinking and, and really that's just that anxiety or having having a high enough level of anxiety that it, it kind of shuts down some some basic functioning yeah um, and after my plane crash in 2000 mm-hmm I had my first panic attack. Or I guess it was probably my first. The first mm-hmm. one I noticed. And I was telling my wife to call 911. I didn't know. I thought I was dying. And that led to kind of a... Tell, tell us about state. the... So, you you, you you followed through and got your... Um, you followed through with your, your piloting? Um, okay, so on my 16th birthday, I soloed, got my student license, and mm-hmm. that meant... So now I could fly without an instructor, and I was, I'd still try to go once a week. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was 17, went flying one night. I was cleared to fly to Provo, touch down at the airport, and come back. Flew into a thunderstorm, scared the shit out of myself. Didn't fly again for a long time. Two years. Wow. 16? Yeah, I was done. I Yeah, I was 17. Oh, 17, okay. But I was kind of over it anyway. Um by that time, my interests had faded, <laughs> so I scared the shit out of myself, almost wrecked. Um, so I was done for a while. I didn't fly again until I was nineteen, and going to the community college. Um, but before that, yeah, high school, I I barely graduated. By I got some good grades until about the middle of eighth grade, which was. 14 and that's when things started to plunder a bit um but i was just reading something recently about high school and how formative formative it is Mm -hmm. and i never you know i didn't really think that was the case but Mm -hmm. extremely formative years and oh yeah that's because that's when we're developing our identity yeah you know identity achievement uh, as far as is is is, you know and a maximum uh developmental point you know and we're also beginning to seriously differentiate from you know our families or our parents or you know our, our caregivers at that point as well so yeah you throw a bunch of substances into the mix and yeah. It's a little bit of role confusion. Yeah, there was. <laughs> and who I, am I? Yeah. It really was like that, though. Who am I? Because I'd go through phases. Some of the people I worked with at the restaurant were in bands, local hardcore bands, mm-hmm. and they were straight edge. So I'd hang out with them sometimes mm-hmm. and go a month or two was thinking I was straight edge or something. <laughs> then I'd be back smoking weed. Yeah, it was chameleon. crazy. And I was looking back at that, like, I didn't, I mean, I got along with everyone, but I didn't fit in with anyone necessarily. And I'm not saying I was this huge outcast, right. but looking back, I can see I didn't really stick with one group. I didn't really fit in, mm-hmm. but I had a lot of friends. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of odd to think about that. But, this, but also, um, this... That also speaks to the idea that how we all have such, there are so many similarities, even if 
you know, the, the, the differences seem, you know, if it's easy to focus on the differences and then point out why people are so different. Yeah. But when you're friends with a whole bunch of different groups, which I c- completely relate to this, mm-hmm. you're focusing more on the similarities that people have. Oh, yeah. You know, and I mean, even someone like Straight Edger, you know, and for those of, for those of you who don't know what a Straight Edger is, um, they're pretty passionate people about certain things, and one of them is the majority of them are drug free. First of all, they're they, very anti drug. They don't believe in you know changing or altering um, your mental or emotional state, um, and uh, they also um, vegan are vegan. Yes, that's how I forget. Was good the vegan abstinence from sex. Absence from yeah, they are abstinent from all different kinds of things. Um, but many of them don't have an issue with violence, and and that's probably another part of being a straight editor. Yeah, and some of them did have uh, that. There was kind of a problem with them being a gang in the early to mid, or probably throughout the nineties in mm-hmm. Salt Lake. We had some run-ins with them when we were skating. Just they got pretty violent for a while, but over across the country, it was mostly a non-violent. Yeah. Movement still is, but yeah, so yeah, there was, and uh, I could see that carry over through college, and which I've never finished really. I always jump back and forth between majors, so I've never finished one. <laughs> this is a constant theme in my life, this real passion about one thing, and go balls out for a few months and then kind of burn out on it or just lose interest. Huh. Um, but yeah, I met my wife, I met my now wife the summer I graduated high school, so mm. 94. Um, and I hung out with her a lot, you know. We, and then that kind of left it open so when I wasn't with her I'd spend a couple nights with this group of friends mm-hmm. and then the next week there's a couple nights with different friends so it yeah. just kept going that uh-huh. way um, isn't that fascinating yeah, yeah. it's really bizarre now was was she um, as far as her friend groups go were they were, were they diverse or, or they were were there more of a narrow width to that or narrow bandwidth she had a few close friends it's okay so she didn't okay. have not anything like me in, in that department. So, hmm. all right, you guys got married, and, and that, we got married in '98. So four, this is like four years later. Yeah. We we use what was your um, intake of substances at this point? What were you? What were um, you? I smoked weed almost daily. Mm-hmm. Um, drank weekly. Um, if I ever had. Um, I took acid quite a bit. That was that was my drug of choice back then. If I could do acid, I was gonna do acid. Um, but yeah, mostly mostly marijuana. I, I, there was a I really liked hip hop back then, and it was going through this. The marijuana phase, the chronic had come out, and <laughs> it was a major topic in hip hop for a long I mean, it still is. Still but back is. then, that's it's when still. it kind of really burst out. Yeah. And yeah. So, yeah. And now, nowadays, I mean, uh, you know, some of those artists have their own brands of marijuana. Yeah, make a lot of money off that now. How <laughs> Willie Nelson makes well, yeah. Of course, he's not much of a hip. No, he's not that a, much into not into hip hop as but much. But the first Snoop guy is, of course. Yeah, Snoop Dogg. But yeah, and I actually did slow down on the marijuana use the longer I dated my wife, my now wife. Hmm. Um, did you did you guys use together? A few times. She didn't like it a whole lot. Okay. But so and yeah, back then it was fine. Hmm. Um, and then you know I went a long time. So let's just jump to two thousand. I got in the plane crash. Mm-hmm. Started having anxiety attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and plane that led crash to really changed your life. It really did. Mm-hmm. And 
it was weird because my the friend that was all in the plane crash with me he drank a lot after that too mm-hmm. he never really seemed to suffer from well who knows what he suffered from on the inside mm-hmm. but outward he, he didn't he went back in a plane not too long after mm-hmm. it took me you you had years. different um, PTSD symptoms yeah, is what you're yeah. saying yeah so it was hard to i couldn't compare myself to him i couldn't see any mm-hmm. so i didn't know if it was the plane accident i mean i knew it was terrifying mm-hmm. and i had the la- life flash before my eyes experience mm-hmm. but i didn't know that it would be the cause of what i now i i now consider it to be the cause of a lot of the suffering that happened since the the stress and the trauma yeah. and, and, and there was some other stuff yeah. that happened when i was a child but that yeah. was a what led to the anxiety attacks which led into a depression mm-hmm. and i didn't get good help back then this in 2000 2001 mm-hmm. the doctor would send me to see a counselor who really didn't it was just take this antidepressant and this xanax or Clonopin, and that's how I rolled for a while. Yeah. And if I benzodiazepines could, definitely uh, treat anxiety. They don't. I mean, just the symptoms. Of, yeah. Well, they treat everything. <laughs> everything's better. Yeah. Everything's better with a Zanny. Okay. Uh, it's just like a, it's like five shots of whiskey, really. <laughs> yeah, for, for all those punch. listeners out there, benzodiazepines and alcohol are kind of the same drug as far as how they affect your central nervous system. Um, it's just the benzodiazepines are you don't you don't smell like alcohol unless you're yeah. drinking with them. Exactly. <laughs> unless, you, unless you put it down with a shot of vodka, yeah. but they have the same effect in the central nervous system, and, they, and ultimately, I guess they're depressants. You know, I yeah, I think especially the long term use. I mean, I use them. 17 years yeah 16 years no 17 because yeah and you know eventually that stuff just doesn't work hmm. the whatever no. you're on whatever antidepressant you're on well it changes the brain um, chemicals yeah you, you put these chemicals in us um and they're basically affecting the way we think um how we behave which then affects the way we behave and um, but it also does change the actual um, neurological structure of the brain, um, and it's definitely changing, uh, having an impact on the, the way that the functioning of neurotransmitters, um, dopamine and serotonin and neuropinephrine, to just say the a few that are affected by yeah. by benzodiazepines. Yeah, absolutely. And you were on also on an antidepressant, yeah, which is also affecting supposedly the reuptake of of certain neurotransmitters like yeah. serotonin as well. So yeah, it took them. And they say don't drink on any of this stuff, of course, right? Please. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I didn't. So after the plane crash, I would, and after I'd been married a couple years, I really didn't. I didn't abuse alcohol. I didn't abuse my prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing is, if I ever did get a prescription to a painkiller, mm-hmm. or I would abuse the shit out of that. So narcotics. Anytime I, mean, I could get high yeah. without doing something illegal, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would do it. <laughs> and and I had, yeah, man, for a while. My mom worked at a doctor's office, and she, they used to bring in samples, and they'd bring in codeine, and you know. Yeah, they, they still so they, do. It was cough syrup, she, <laughs> and I had a cough, so she gave me a little case of, I found if I downed that whole bottle, it was, these are like 30 milliliter bottles. And yeah, so like an ounce. Yeah. yeah. I found that if I downed that whole bottle, mm-hmm. I'd get high. So I kept, you know, I knew, I didn't know exactly... I had there was no internet to research these drugs. <laughs> this is all, this is uh this is yeah this is all, all pre-internet. The internet was pretty young, and I didn't really have access to, it, so it's kind of. Well, can you imagine? It took a minute or two just to download one page. Oh yeah, yeah. I, no, yeah. but uh, so I didn't know exactly. I mean, I knew coding was. I knew what coding was. And I knew hmm. it was in there, so I knew what I was doing. But so did I had um. So after the plane accident, I had physical therapy for a while. 
Because you had you had back injuries, right? This, had, is, this I, is the beginning yeah, of your back injuries. Yeah, yeah. and that's where I was going to go. And this also, the plane crash also started the physical pain that I've dealt with since then too. Um, I had severe. I pulled just about every muscle in my back and neck. Severe mm-hmm. whiplash. So mm-hmm. I was in physical therapy for six or eight months, and pretty much on a nonstop diet of Vicodins and Percocets. They would switch it up. So, so you were, you, were, you then, were introduced to the, the, these narcotics, yeah, yeah, uh, and and this is we, and obviously there were you know the, the opiate epidemic that our country and other parts of the world are in right now, but probably the, the most serious it seems to be in the United States. Mm-hmm. This is this is a, a initially where. A, a quite a large portion of it began um, in the doctor's office to treat um, long-term yeah. pain management. Yeah. Which, as we know now today, that you know whoever came up with that idea, uh, sick person. Sick. <laughs> <laughs> sick. Well, yeah, unless you're in the pharmaceutical yeah, industry, right? That's, that's yeah, exactly yeah. it. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. That. It was bank, and has been bank, and been proven to be bank again and again. Um, and marketed that way and for a long time, but that's how we end up in the problem that we're in today. Yeah. So you, you were introduced to these. So, in the way yeah, a lot of people so have I had the emotional the and, um, emotional problems, but now I'd been introduced to narcotics through the physical problems. Mm-hmm. And this is 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. They'd had no problem giving you a prescription for those narcotics mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. It was not an issue back then. Like, there's no. So yeah, and I I definitely abused those. I would I would go a week with pain, if I ran out of my prescription early, and I wouldn't give a shit. I'll just go get my prescription again. Right. Sometimes they'd feel that. I mean, I don't even remember going without the pills. They could they would just give you a prescription. They'd call it in, or you just drop by. I, I don't remember, but it was never a problem. It's not it like goes. it is today. Yeah, yeah it, I mean, well, that's what I think people might have a hard time understanding is in the early 2000s, it was just like... Well, it was thought of as a good like, thing. Yeah, they thought it was the cure-all, so it right. was really easy to get, and that obviously was a horrible situation yeah. for me. And by the way, for you know our listeners, um, here in Utah... In fact, along the Wasatch Front is where this made the shift from being uh, where chronic pain be- was treated more uh, through physical therapy, um, long-term physical therapy, into um, nar- narcotic or you know pharmaceutical therapy. Um, and because we had really great programs here before this, if you go back to the '80s, especially. And, and the early 90s, before this transition happened, um, Utah was renowned for um, uh, long-term pain management treatment through physical therapy. And, oh, um, I didn't and, know that. And it was. And, and, but it also was one of the markets in which it changed in, too, that it, it grew really fast and once it did. And <laughs> we have our own special anomalies here in Utah with medications, of course. We, uh, you know, some of the highest opiate abuse has always been here. Um, but we also, strangely enough, we have the highest use of benzodiazepines like Xanax and Valium and Clonopin and also antidepressants. antidepressants yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, just a little south of us in Utah County, number one in the country for SSRIs. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. But I digress. It's a tangent, but yeah, I, and there's reasons for that that don't make sense. But anyway. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, as time went on, I I was married, our marriage was kind of rocky, um, around the time of the plane crash and, but it seemed to get stronger after the plane crash for a long time. Um, had a kid, my first child in 2002 and... I took my wife's painkillers for that pregnancy too. But any uh that was game changer. That was time to really grow up and 
Oh, and uh, oh, the dad, the, yeah, the, being a dad, the, you know? that changes the brain, changes yeah. everything. It changes everything. Um, I loved it, still do. Greatest thing in my life. Um, but I still had all those underlying issues mm-hmm. that have, that were never properly dealt with mm-hmm. until the last few years. Um, had my second kid and last in 2006. Um, and here's where it gets tricky because for all the good things, uh, great wife, great kids, I had decent jobs or a decent job. I'd found a job as a, I think I have a natural ability to write. That might be my only natural ability as far as professional viable options. Uh (laughs) (laughs) But I had lucked into a job as a technical writer and I liked it and it was getting, you know, it was paying the bills. It was it's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was just kind of cruising along. Um, being a parent, husband, had a house. And so it was hard for me to ever... I used to try to justify why I started drinking and why I'd always abuse any prescription I had. Mm-hmm. Um, once or twice a week, I'd take extra Xanax on a a night just because you know like, you why do I do this because yeah, I do could, this because right? I could yeah yeah um and it uh, I mean let's be honest it probably felt good you know? it felt amazing yeah. yeah you just knock yourself out <laughs> you don't feel anything except whatever you know it's uh, I'm kind of just skating through these years because really it was it was just working and family and mm-hmm. I seem to be okay with it. Well, don't you think, too, I mean, based upon your experience, and I know we talk about hindsight here, but the, this idea that a pill, <laughs> I mean, a pill is going to help deal with stress, anxiety, and pain in my life. And yeah. we become so almost inoculated into that way of thinking and being that it's just second nature. So... I mean, literally, um, you know, it starts off maybe in in some ways somewhat innocently. And yeah, I'm not saying it's completely because you, you, you admit you knew what you were doing, but that it became so accessible and and you had a, a reason, <laughs> a justifiable yeah, medical a, reason. A medical excuse. Yeah, to support the use and uh, Yeah, the abuse. doctor's not to... For drugs. Yeah, so. yeah. Doctors say, here you go. Go ahead yeah. and abuse these drugs. Even though I know most doctors don't think that way. The majority of doctors don't think of it that way. But there, of course, are some who do. Um, I, I only say that because I was never um, counseled by someone who should have been dealing, or who should have been. Oh, I, I don't want to say should have been. Who could have helped me with mm-hmm. the PTSD from the plane crash and things that happened previously in my mm-hmm. life. So no one ever referred me to anyone like that. And so in that case, I was kind of naive. I thought, well, they just handle it with pills. So maybe it is this <laughs> the pills. Well, that's fine. A lot of people think this way, Matt. <laughs> so, yeah. A lot of yeah. people think this way. But and you want to take the it, pills away. Yeah. It's like you're taking away my safety net. You know, if you take the pills away... And I've got to learn to do this without them. I don't, you know, some people would rather not be alive and th- that becomes a problem too. And, yeah. and then they fear counseling or a support system to help them, you know, deal with those underlying issues. Yeah. It's, it's a bizarre situation, but it really led to, um, like, so in 2009, I went back to school for film Mm-hmm. at the community college because that was one of the things I had a passion for in high school um, but again I, I did a few semesters and then I was done tried to start a photography videography business but everyone and their cousin does <laughs> this is when digital started to get really popular so yeah. everyone and their cousin started doing photography and that didn't work, really work out and I was fine being a technical writer anyway but i was always looking for happiness in a new career yeah what could i do externally and that meant a career because that's what took up most of my day that's right 
I mean, this is in my head. This is what it meant to me. Mm -hmm. So I was always, I mean, from probably like 2008, 2007 on Mm -hmm. looking for this happiness. And I thought it was, I just need to find the perfect job. Right. Because I got... And then I'll be happy. I got a perfect wife, perfect kids. Yeah. I'll be happy once I find the perfect job. So I went through... I mean, I drive myself crazy doing career tests and personality tests, trying to find jobs. And I'm, good Lord, the amount of energy I spent on that. Um, <laughs> well, and if you take those under the influence of certain drugs or narcotics, they... I had come up as something. I'm high on Xanax, taking a personality test or a career test, and it comes up something that I'm completely not. Yeah, bizarre. You should be a veterinarian. Yeah, come on. I love animals, but um. Anyway, I mean, there's not a whole lot of detail to go over in this period of my life, except drinking, mm-hmm. coming home from work, having two beers. Mm-hmm. Did that for a while. Then it moves up to three and then four. This is a typical story. And then I'm coming home early to get to get <laughs> to get to, drunk. Start my, to get your buzz on yeah, early. Yeah, and it right. becomes a problem because my wife gets home and I'm already drunk. The kids see me, I'm drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and this really starts to peak in 2014. Um, I'm pretty much drunk. All the time, I leave work early. I have a my my job. No one's keeping tabs on me. I can uh-huh. get my job done pretty quick in the morning, and then go home and drink. Um, and before you know it, I'm up to twenty four to thirty beers a day. Sometimes I'll keep some vodka or. You know, just to kickstart the <laughs> kickstart the afternoon. Get things moving a little quicker. Yeah. yeah, I think it actually became more of a problem in 2013, 2012, that time frame. Uh-huh. But no one in my family said anything, and but I remember in 2014 thinking, if I ever have to quit, it's going to be a problem. Hmm. I remember thinking that, and. Yeah, I was actually in the bathroom again. I have these deep, these moments of clarity in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah I don't, don't think you? By the way, I don't think I, you're I, alone with that. Yeah, no. I, I think, think that's a great certain, place. I certain, think it's quiet, yeah. just by yourself. You look at yourself in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I remember thinking that, like, oh well. well, I was drunk, so it didn't matter. Well, you know, well, what I'll say about this. <laughs> The bathroom piece, or is that um, you, you're really? I know this may seem a little really weird. Vulnerable. Even this comes out of my mouth. I'm thinking, but like it's generally you're in the moment. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's like you're yep. present. You know, yeah, for the most part. So I mean, unless you're completely intoxicated or something, or something you're else. In is going moment, on, but you're, you're in vulnerable. the moment. But <laughs> you're vulnerable. You're not in any position to defend yourself <laughs> if something were to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I always have a fear that, yeah. you know, you're attacked by spiders. While, Ooh, while... in the basement bathroom, that's a real possibility. <laughs> okay. Uh, but anyway, so on my birthday, 2015, April 2015, I had pain pills. See, over the years, my back and neck would act up, and I'd go in, get a small prescription for painkillers, mm-hmm. and of course, abuse them. So on my birthday, I'd taken some painkillers, and of course, I'd been drinking all day. I went to my parents' house, and just out of line, I'd been getting, been having more episodes like that, where I was just getting out of line, mm-hmm. loud, obnoxious, my jokes weren't. It's funny to everyone all the time. <laughs> I can't imagine. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> um, so my parents came over after my birthday and we sat out on the back patio with my wife and talked about, like, I was on Lyrica, I was on Benzos, I was on 
an antidepressant and drinking probably 27 beers a day on average quite a cocktail so yeah it was a mess and I didn't want to give any of it up but my parents came over to with and along with my wife to talk to me about you gotta tell me I need to stop mm-hmm. I wasn't having it like I can't I don't want to I'll, I'll cut back on the drinking but everything else like I have right. to take right, this right. stuff yeah. You know. Well, you've been well trained. You know, this is what I need to do for yeah. myself. Yeah. Right? This, this is how I take care of it. Mm-hmm. Um, by October, my wife was. Well, was it October? Yeah, it was October. My yeah, wife so was, the, the, That was in April. Yeah. And then uh, I kept going. Nothing fall. changed. Yeah. And so in the fall, my wife had had it. Um, we'd had just a rough few months. Um. She called me crying, saying she really needed to talk to me. I, would, I didn't want to hear it, but I drove down to her work. It was raining. It was cold. We sat in the car, and she said, I'm going to leave with the kids mm-hmm. um, if something doesn't change. Mm. And as and that scared me enough to I finally decided, okay. That seemed real. Yeah. That actually seemed real. That was, I mean... To not be with my kids every day was just... Uh, I mean, my wife, too, but... Yeah. The kids, really, like... And it's not that I don't love her as much, but that just... I mean, I, that whole situation, I was like, okay. And there's a therapist I had been seeing off and on. I... The year before, we flew to Austin, and it was my first time flying since the plane crash. So I went and saw a therapist, and I'll be enough. And we joked about this after. He told me just to have a few beers before I got on the plane. <laughs> he gave me some Zen, <laughs> just to <laughs> take my pills. And <laughs> we joked about that after. Yeah, but, I bet. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> Good but um, he helped me get into detox, and... So this was the end of 2015. I just did IOP for a couple months. Mm-hmm. I told Lindsay I'm out. I I can't. It was depressing to me at IOP. Mm-hmm. Um, and I honestly just, I wasn't done. I, I wasn't done. I wasn't ready for it. Yeah. IOP I I could. for those uh, for those people listening. IOP is intensive outpatient program, and yeah. usually an evening program, three yeah, three, three or four nights, nights a week, week. Yeah. three hours. Um, two weeks after I quit that, I went and got a prescription for Xanax. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife was concerned, but it didn't seem like it was too big a deal. <laughs> but in that 2016, I just started drinking again till it spiraled out of control. How long did um, it take before you were back? A couple months, three months, four months. You were back kind of up to your... Yeah. It's kind of amazing how quickly we Yeah, it was that. one weekend, or not even a weekend, I was on my way home. Had to stop at 7-Eleven to get some cigarettes. Went, got a tall boy, just to see... Test it out. <laughs> yeah, right. Dip my toe some, in the water. Some, some field research, right? Yeah. yeah right. I wonder right. if I can get away with it now. I wonder if I'll just. And actually, I think I did. I think I went a whole week before I had another one. But then it just same old story. Spiraled out of control. Mm-hmm. I wandered into IOP one night, drunk, and started day treatment in January 2017. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, Quite a journey. Yeah. I mean, and there's a lot of little details we don't need to go over that happen in between there. But yeah, that's sure. the general pattern. That's and so you. When I look back, there was a lot of drug abuse that I'd never considered before. Right. As yeah. drug abuse, but yeah. Well, and culturally, um, I mean, drugs are part of our culture, and, and there are different aspects of that. I mean, obviously, again, um, that some people look at some kind of drugs as being good and others as bad and yeah. you know a lot of a lot of judgment happens here and even within the recovery or sober communities the idea that you know you know you know like you know 
if you you know you're different if you're just you know abused alcohol you know that, that, that yeah, that's a difference a... you know or you know if you uh, only abused um, you know marijuana that you know that was that was different too and um, that one was a big difference because when I went to IOP the first time there was a guy in there that only abused marijuana yeah. and everyone kind of laughed at him not yeah. to his face no. but it was kind of <laughs> like you serious bro yeah. Yeah, and that's that's where this is where the part about addiction yeah. kind of becomes universal because we every time we try to, to you know split or you know, split people up based upon their DOC or their drug of choice, it ends up causing more problems, you know, in the long run because then we focus on the differences. You know, well, this yeah. person did this and this person did that, and I've heard you know people that abuse. Um, you know, um, uh, opiates, you know, the narcotics in pill form from, and they go, yeah, but I, I you know, I feel different because I never did heroin, you know, yeah. and I'm going, well, then, you know, you never got to the good stuff. I mean, yeah, jokingly, you didn't go it's, that's a way. sad thing to say, but yeah. um, the, the truth is that, well, I, I did it in pill form, so I wasn't like a, a real junkie, a junkie, right? Yeah, yeah, right, so... Yeah, sorry. You know, you're, you you can be you can be a junkie doing anything. In fact, you can be a junkie and be addicted to, you know, your a, a political ideology or a religious ideology yeah. and still be a junkie. It's you don't not just a junkie because of the the substance that's used. Belief systems are exactly the same way. So, with that in mind, mm-hmm. we kind of like we'll kind of skate over here to this uh, this other thing. So when you when you think about the other struggles that you've had and and maybe some of these became more apparent at this time um when you when you decided to change things, you know, um yeah. and decided to, you know, forge a, a new a different or, or new path. Um did you notice any other type of uh, uh, addictive or obsessive compulsive aspects to your Absolutely. life? Absolutely. What what kind of this stood obsession out? I get with with certain ideas, like I was mentioning my job, mm-hmm. my careers. Mm-hmm. Well, I had done that with all kinds of stuff over the years. Huh. And that has definitely been something I've worked on the, the past couple of years. It's just, uh, I guess it's an obsessive, uh, an obsessive quality, not a quality, but well, a behavior, that, I mean, an obsessive yeah. behavior. Yeah. I, yeah. I obsessive way of thinking. You, you kind yeah. of lock onto something, and it's difficult to let it go, and yeah. because it's bringing you something. I mean, the same. You know how that is with relationships, right? So um, it would. It probably doesn't seem rational to say, "Well, I have an obsession about being a father." I mean, I'm, I'm talking about for myself, yeah, um, because you know I've got a, a <laughs> bunch of kids, and um, <laughs> that's how much you like it. You have a bunch of kids. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, um, the but the, the the truth is is that you know I mean are there are there good or bad obsessions and, and you know this argument goes around of some you know goes around all the time in um, sober communities especially when you're dealing with things like gambling or um, sex or work or even exercise. That's the one I was wanted to. I notice a lot of people in recovery get into exercise and really get into it. Uh-huh. Which is great for recovery, but it's... well, and as as you know yourself, right? That you know, and you got into exercise and began using steroids. You know, your whole life changed. Yeah, thanks, Paul. <laughs> I'm glad you noticed the muscle build up. Yeah, <laughs> you sly bastard. So I, I'm, I'm totally, uh, I'm totally bullshitting right now, um, <laughs> but I'm doing it. I'm doing it because yeah. <clears throat> we, we, we it's a running joke. Yeah, run, a running joke that um, you know, because we do, it, you, and we do have people in our lives, uh, uh, Matt, that that do struggle with exercise yeah. and definitely struggle with juicing. You know, which is abusing steroids. Yeah, and. Um, it, it first of all changes their bodies, but it definitely changes the way they think, mm-hmm. and um, and you know we, we've witnessed that, and that's that's sort of the the darker side of exercise. I mean, it's kind of yeah. the obsessiveness gets to a point where body image issues also come out in that, yeah. right? Yeah, we've also, and then that also moves into the area that. Um, is a lot of people struggle with talking about which is eating disorders. So, mm-hmm. you know, we had, we had Shadi on last, yeah. last month and he shared, you know, that, that what he went through and that was quite, uh, he had never told anyone that, and, yeah, yeah, which I thought was, was kind of fascinating. It was, know? that was interesting yeah. to listen to him talk about it. Yeah. So, all right, let's, is there anything that you, do you, are you at all? 
um, want to talk about you, you know you, your younger years when you you struggled and um, you know I, I'm and and I say that that you know obviously we, you know you don't we don't have to but I, I wonder if you know having a realization of some of the things and without being specific but oh yeah but some of the trauma you had in your youth you know how that kind of because it was never dealt with it it's sort of was something that festered for a long time, sort of underneath the surface, you know. You didn't quite notice it. For sure. It, it's yeah. not like, you know, there's a storm up above, but below, it's, it's that sort of festering itch yeah. you can't get to. Yeah, and that didn't come out until a month or two into day treatment. <laughs> and I never wanted to admit, it, admit that the, this situation that happened could have been a contributing factor <laughs> to my substance abuse. Well, and it, it, it's probably a part of it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Just it was yeah. a, a factor. Yeah. I didn't want to admit that, though. It seemed I didn't. I guess I didn't want to give it the power. Sure. Um, well, I, and uh, you know, I you know, I think most people on, have some type of abuse story or neglect story in their life, in, in some form or another. And it, abuse comes in different ways too. So, mm-hmm. um, in my life, I experienced you know um, physical and emotional abuse. Um, and you know, that, that's part, that was part of my story. Um, but I, you know, I, I think that most of that, if I were to say there's a tie in with it, most of it was how I internalized who I was. And maybe that's where shame, if we talk about the correlation between shame and addiction or shame and mental health, right? Stability that, um, there's definitely this tie-in that shame is so toxic because we feel something's actually wrong with us, right? Yeah, yeah. and it's strange because you know, I was a young child when that happened, and mm-hmm. to look back and see how that manifested, mm. or con- you know, it kind of caught me off guard. But yeah, knowing what I know now, that was absolutely a factor. Sure, absolutely something that should have been dealt with. It just these things get. I mean, you're a kid, you don't, you don't know, you're just, you're skating along, trying to be like all the other kids, you're just having fun, and meanwhile, inside, there's something kind of eating away at you. Sure. It's almost like this, this story or something that was not quite fully written, it's like, is it sort of like a, almost like a... And this is maybe not the best word for it, but when I, I think back at events in my life, sometimes it's like there's a like a faded Polaroid of it, you know, like yeah. you know, not a not like the not a really good Polaroid picture, but you can kind of yeah. make out what it yeah. is, but you don't really understand how it really relates or that's or how, yeah affects us. Because my wife had asked me; she was one of the only people that had known about a particular thing that happened, and she would ask me, "Do you think that?" that has anything to do with it no i did immediately dismiss it nah no way <laughs> no way it, it should have been a sign right then yeah right in there. So, absolutely so they, no that has nothing to do with it don't we don't want to no, talk about that moving on <laughs> so <laughs> let, talk, talk to me about um what what was like when you uh you became aware of your victim narrative when do you kind of remember that moment when you actually went oh fuck i'm a victim yeah <laughs> And I mean, um, it doesn't just like stop. I mean, I, you know, I, no. stuff comes out of my mouth some days and I go, what the hell? Yeah, I catch myself <sighs> all the time. Yeah. This is last week, as a matter of fact. But <laughs> I think it was, it was pretty cl- early in day treatment. Mm-hmm. Just after a couple sessions with the other Paul and Cheryl and Lindsay and everyone and just listening to people talk, mm-hmm. talk in group, and knowing about what victim stance is and what it means to be the victim, mm-hmm. having that knowledge, uh, it, I kind of s- put it all together and kind of did have an aha. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The aha moment, how... The... I'm not the only one. <clears throat> right. In fact, that the aha moment seems to be that, oh, is, if I continue to play a victim uh of my past or or present then yeah. i'm relinqu- relinquishing control 
of the ability to change it. I'm, I'm putting it yeah. on someone else, other place, per, person, place, or thing. Yeah. So if I play the victim of some other person, place, or thing, then I'm giving them the power, and I can't change because I'm saying that the reason why I can't is because of that thing, which that that leads yeah. to avoiding accountability. Well, if you're the victim, you're being oppressed. So yeah. right. You you can blame the oppressor and or just yeah, it's the oppressor. Whatever. You don't have to take responsibility. So, all right, let's 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 kind of we're going to jump ahead a little bit. So, one of my favorite things to talk about is the the correlation of the dynamic between the fixer and the the saboteur, and and these are not perfect <laughs> identity roles that we play because they 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 go back and forth and they transfer over. And uh, we were talking about this with Brett last week a little bit because. Um, you know, what is it like to play the role or to identify oneself as a saboteur, like one that's going around sabotaging things, you know, or yeah. to identify the role of being the fixer? Because it also, because we all, we don't just play one role in life. And, and yeah, so, I, you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, I get it. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't pinpoint which one I am. Yeah. Do you, do you notice, though, the the ways in which sometimes you do play the saboteur or you do play the fixer? I mean, is, as a parent, oh, my gosh, it, being a fixer just seems like, you know, wired to do that sometimes because we don't want to see our kids suffer, even though there are moments that if we can allow them to go through things and grow from that experience, the dividends or the benefits from that, right, the credits yeah. that get created will pay off long term for them. So. I, I had to figure that one out. I didn't get that yeah. as a parent for quite a while. And maybe that's why I had so many kids because I had to figure <laughs> out how to, how to do some again, of this stuff. Start right? over. Yeah. Let's, try with, let's try with another one. <laughs> and this one, I'll get it. Yeah. Except all the other kids that have an effect on that kid, too. So a family yeah. system, it's not like every, it's, there's, there's no real isolation. Everyone has an effect on everyone else in a family yeah. system. The dynamics are fascinating. Yeah, yeah. it really is. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I probably do it the most if my kids try to be a fixer. Mm -hmm. Of course, like you just said, I don't want to see them suffer. Um, I, I think what I do to a fault sometimes is try and relate my experience and my knowledge from recovery mm -hmm. and all the stuff I've learned. Mm -hmm. I'll try and push that. Like if my wife's having a hard day or a hard mm -hmm. time, I absolutely try to step in and, and maybe you need to meditate. <laughs> maybe you need to be more mindful. You know, sometimes I do stuff like that. I haven't been a saboteur. Um, for a while, I haven't. I can't think of anything I've done that has tried to sabotage. Besides all the drug and alcohol use, well, previously. in the past, yeah. Yes, I no, mean, I as of late, yeah. But yeah, definitely in the past. Yeah. Well, that's that. I think it's Brady that said this. You know, back in the, the first episode of this was, I, I, I'm a, I'm a fixer and a saboteur's, you know, body or mass yeah. or something like that. Where. You know, I really, I, I'm really more dependent upon other people and and looking to be finding ways to be connected and vulnerable with them, but but it looks like because I'm not really good at it that I keep messing up and, and sabotaging relationships <laughs> over and over again. Yeah. Right? So that yeah. kind of idea. Yeah. And, and you brought up by the way. Let's let's jump again. You brought up meditation. So. Um, that's really quite an amazing journey, I think, you know, from at least what you've shared with me up yeah. to this point. And a lot of other people, I know that uh, that the idea of how meditation has changed your life and refuge recoveries had such an impact on Huge that. Impact. Yeah. Do you want to share with that a little bit? Yeah, I was um, up till day treatment, start of 2017. I was pretty atheist and not spiritual mm -hmm. at all. I um I just never found that side of myself mm -hmm. or looked for it or wanted to. Um my family was never religious. I never God never made sense to me. Um <laughs> Well, yeah. I but, mean it still doesn't for Yeah, me. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying it, for you. It but. does to me in a way, but probably in my own You're you right. know, my definition for God is definitely yeah. different than the church I attend mm -hmm. on occasion. Um, but 
one of the therapists, Cheryl, um, she's kind of the spiritual spiritual coach over there, I guess. Yeah, you no, that's, that's a good way to that. put it. Yeah. Um, I guess I should say when I started day treatment, I was going to go, I, I wanted this fixed like it had to. Mm-hmm. I can't keep messing up. I'm going to lose my family. Okay? Mm-hmm. So my work has, they gave me three and a half, four months. Go ahead, you know. They have a program there to pay, you know, you can get treatment. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, this is great. It's my full-time job to get treatment. I'm going to give it everything I got. And I really did. I opened my mind to whatever was going to be brought to the table. I would take a taste. So I had sessions with Cheryl, and she really challenged me to ask the universe or, and, and find what God meant to me. Mm-hmm. And she really made it clear that it doesn't have to be a Christian God or this or that. that just you, you, need, you, could, you should try it to explore what it means to you. And so I did. I, I started practicing some of what she was telling me. And I did find a spiritual side, but that really manifested in refuge recovery and meditation. Yeah. Not that I consider myself Buddhist by any means, but I find um, a great spiritual connection through meditation. In group meditation, it's such a powerful experience. Group meditation is very powerful and it makes you better solo meditator. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's when I really started to to find my... And I think the spiritual side is what has really helped me thus far. Um, Without a doubt... Just that connection with other humans, and you feel more connected. I feel way more connected. Way more connected. And and, and and this idea that that meditation, sort of in itself, is sort of like a framework for spirituality, even though it's something you can do all by yourself. Then this, yeah. I think it kind of speaks to this place of. Um, and I was talking about this recently with, with Brett and, and was that somewhere along the way, a few thousand years ago or so, God got separated from being part of us to being something outside of us, you know, that we kind of worship or, yeah. That, that, I mean, the, the, there's a separation, there's a difference. There's, instead of being one, it was something separated from us that we yeah. aspired to be instead of within us, something that we aspire to connect and live through. And and um, I used to use words like artistic self, or a lot of a lot of times your authentic self, Don Miguel Ruiz, uh, through four agreements uses that kind of terminology too. This finding that true authentic component of us that is, if you know, some part in some way connected to a higher power, God, or nature, or the universe, or some type of collective. If you want to say consciousness, I mean, we could, if we want to be Jungian, I guess we could we could talk about it from that point of view. Um, yeah, I just realized that, or I came to a realization or an epiphany that we there is we have a purpose on this rock, other than partying and fighting. Third rock from the sun. Third rock from the sun, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, we're all, we are all connected. Where, where, you, and, where, you, where you feel like you really connect? Um, I, th- I think there's several places. Um, w- with my family, we laugh a lot and have a lot of fun the last little, especially the last little while. And so it's something as simple as going to Lagoon and just being with them. I'm oh I just feel so present and and happy. Um, a lot of times I like to drive, and if I'm on a, a good road like going up the canyon or something just for fun, I I'm really in the moment and happy. Um, but I can find it in a lot of places now. I, I don't have one specific. I don't have to go fishing to find my zen spot. Right. It's nothing like that. 
You get it from a lot of different Yeah, things. I find it in a lot of different things now. <laughs> it can be anything. Picking a favorite song or movie is like picking a child. Like picking your favorite child. It just can't happen. But, you know, social distortion. That I can... I've always had felt the connection to his music. Mike Ness, the lead singer. Um, he was an addict and got in trouble and a lot of his music I I can always go to that to find some connection to um, and I've been listening to a lot of older music lately just um, kind of some 80's metal and 70's rock that I actually find more I think because it has more meaning I find more meaning in it um, so I don't think I could pinpoint one song. One song. Yeah, that's okay. But social distortion will always kind of. I can. I always connect with with Mike's stuff. So. It, it resonates for you. Yeah, it really does. Okay. Um. Well, any last any last words? Any last thoughts you want to share with the listeners today? <laughs> yes. Um, yes. I do. You can do it. <laughs> well, the thing is, I ah, no. <laughs> Don't take advice from me. Don't take Listen advice to yourself. From me. Listen to yourself. <laughs> that authentic. No, I think. Uh, yeah, actually, that kind of is something I'd like to say. Just trust your gut. Do what you know is right. Yeah, that Slaybaker said that. You know, listen to yourself. You're okay. Yeah, you know what you're doing. Stop, stop thinking you're broken and you can't do this shit. If you don't know what you're doing, it doesn't matter. There's something seriously wrong and you're not ever going to realize it anyway. Most people know what they're doing and you need to listen. Listen. Maybe we all just need to listen to ourselves and other people more. Listening is important. Actually, that that in itself sometimes is one of the, I think, the greatest things that when I look back at the things that I've learned in life is that specific idea of being a good listener. Yeah. Um, if, and I, it's so hard to listen when I'm talking. <laughs> so what I hear you saying, Paul, <laughs> is that when you're talking, which happens, you can't listen. Uh, no. And on that note, we'll <laughs> Episode 5, because I am going to be a good listener to a close. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate your time today. Thank and, you for having me. We're going to go out with, uh, with Joe and Osborne. See you. Nice. See you next week. What would it look like in